please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64. We're, we're coming to the conclusion of Isaiah. That's getting closer and closer here. Isaiah chapter 64, we'll be reading all 12 verses, uh, working our way as we worked our way through this. Actually has one of my favorite verses in all of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 64, it's actually verse um, 6, um, talking about our own sinfulness, talking about uh, even all of our righteous deeds are like a, pollu- a polluted garment. Uh, it's funny that that might be one of my favorite verses in Isaiah, but it is because it reminds me that even my righteous deeds are tainted uh, by sin and I cannot rest and rely upon my own strength, but only the strength of the Lord. Uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning, if you are able. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, when you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt into the hands of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand." Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? and afflict, afflict us so terribly. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Wow. You get to there in, in the first section of, of this, and so this is where we're going. We're going to talk about what it means to cry out to God in the midst of desolation and ruin and, and frustration and just feeling as if God has left you forever. The, the pertinent word in Isaiah chapter 64 is in verse 1, and it is this Hebrew word, and it is O. That's what it is. It's O. Because it's this, it says that from, from the guts of my soul, like I am crying out to you, O Lord, O, please, 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 from, from the depths of my soul, would you please answer me? And why? Why? Because when you see in verse um, 10 and 11, it says so. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Now, now Isaiah is preaching to a people that he will one day see in exile. So the people of Judah, Isaiah is, is giving a futuristic prophecy to a people who will be living in exile under a Babylonian captivity. And he sees them, and he says, there will come a day when you will recognize that Jerusalem is laying in ruin. Now, at the time of writing of this particular prophecy... Jerusalem has just been saved by the Assyrians. 
So if you're the first person to read Isaiah's prophecy, you're thinking, Isaiah, you're off your rocker. We have just been saved by the Lord. What are you talking about? And Isaiah is saying, no, there will come a time when you will forsake the way of the Lord. He will lead you into exile. And in the midst of exile, you will see the desolation and ruin of Jerusalem, which is the place of God. And it will, it will make you sad. You will see the people of God, you know, continuing to be led astray by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it will make you grieve for the people of God. And in the midst of the ruin and the desolation and, and what's going on in the world, I, actually, I don't think I could have picked a better chapter for where we are right now currently in the world. I mean, how many of you have been undone this week when you begin to think about the Ukraine and Russian conflict? And you don't even know what to, you don't know how to pray, you don't know what to say, except you just cry out to the Lord and you go, Lord. Essentially, you go, oh, oh, Lord, how long? Lord, what will you do? Lord, we see all of these things. And, and, and we cry out, this is a prayer for revival. This is a prayer for an extraordinary, miraculous salvation that the people of God are praying that God would show up. And I, and I love it. Now, when we think about prayer, um, you know, prayer, you know, Paul Miller in A Praying Life, it's, it's my favorite book on prayer. He says this, he says, prayer is asking God to incarnate. Prayer to get dirty in your life. Yes, the eternal God scrubs floors. For, for sure, we know he washes feet. So take Jesus at his word, ask him, tell him what you want. Get dirty. Write out your prayer request. Don't mindlessly drift through life on the American narcotic of busyness. If you try to seize the day, the day will eventually break you. Seize the corner of Jesus' garment and don't let him go until he blesses you. He will reshape the day. I love that. I love that picture. Essentially, prayer is this. We are clinging to the garment, to the corner of Jesus' garment and saying, Lord Jesus, come and work and rule and reign and fix and mend. Please, Lord, I'm going to take hold of you and I'm going to take hold of you and not let go until you answer in the affirmative. That's the posture of Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. And quite frankly, I think that's the posture that many of us have right now given the state of the world. Oh, that you... Now, this is a prayer of Isaiah for the people who are stranded in exile. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, when does God come down? God comes down in the person of Jesus. And he will come down again. And the second coming... He will begin to mend all that which is broken. He will come and, you know, there's this, this cry for, for this revival that would happen in the midst of the people of God, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. I mean, there's this, this picture that Isaiah has, and I think it's the cry of our hearts. I hope it's the cry of our hearts. When, when we say, you know, the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father, who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's thy kingdom come. 
Before we ever get to debts and debtors, before we ever get to daily bread in the midst of the Lord's Prayer, we cry out that God's kingdom would expand, that His will would be done on earth. So what we're saying is that, Lord, we pray that what happens in heaven will be done on earth. We pray that You will show up in a mighty way and You will make the nations know who You are. That's what we pray for. If you're praying for in the midst of the Ukraine-Russian conflict, pray that God's kingdom would expand, that He would show up in a mighty way. Your prayer, really what we're praying for is this idea of revival. When I think about this idea that, um, that people would come in masses and, and know the Lord. There's um, this thing that occurred in, um, around, uh, when is, I have the date here. You know, it's, it's around 1735. It's called the First Great Awakening. Some of you may have learned about this in, in school. The First Great Awakening around you know, men like Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the, the very first uh, presidents of Princeton Seminary. Um, when it was still believed in Jesus. Um, but, but when he was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1735, the Spirit of God began to move in this small town in Massachusetts, and people came to faith. And, and here's what Jonathan Edwards said about this. He says, you know, in 1735, um, he says, here's what happens. He says, in, in, regarding his congregation and the whole town, the whole town, not just his church, the whole town, He says, the minds of people were wonderfully taken off from the world. It was treated amongst us as a thing of very little consequence. They seemed to follow their worldly business more as a part of their duty than from any disposition that they had to it. The temptation now seemed to lie on that hand to neglect worldly affairs too much and to spend too much time in the immediate exercise of religion. They're spending too much time at church, too much time in prayer. Too much time talking about the Lord Jesus, if that were possible. In the spring and summer following 1735, the whole town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love nor of joy. Imagine a whole town, a whole region of the country where the Spirit of God is moving. It said this about their young people. Our young people, when they met, they, they, were, they wanted to spend time in talking of the excellence and dying love of Jesus Christ, the glory of the way of salvation, the wonderful, free, and sovereign grace of God, His glorious work in the conversion of a soul, the truth and certainty of the great things of God's Word, the sweetness of the views of His perfections. Think about that. When kids got together, they didn't play dodgeball. They talked about theology. They got together and said, can you believe what Jesus has done for us? Can you believe that we're saved by grace? The Spirit was working in the midst of this entire town to the point where kids were coming together to encourage one another in the faith. He says, a loose and careless person could scarcely be found in the whole neighborhood. You couldn't find one George Boomer in the whole neighborhood. I had all kinds of different examples I could have used there. It was one, he goes on to say, it was very wonderful to see how persons' affections were sometimes moved when God did, as it were, suddenly open their eyes and let into their minds a sense of the greatness of His grace, the fullness of Christ, and His readiness to save. And after having been broken with the apprehensions of divine wrath and sunk in an abyss under a sense of guilt which they were ready to think was beyond the mercy of God, they were, they were so moved by the Spirit of God that they literally could not get up out of their chairs in the midst of the church service, and they would sit there all afternoon. 
And they would say, wow, I've been saved. This is amazing. Now, I'm not telling you to stay in your seats all day. Okay? The deacons have to go home. All right? But the Spirit of God is working. And when the Spirit of God begins to to work within us, our, our minds, our attentions, our focus, the love that we have, it begins to focus us on the eternal things, not the finite things of this world. And in some ways, you know, coming to church on a, on a Sunday reminds us of this. The, um, when the spirit that is at work operates against the interest of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and establishing sin and cherishing men's worldly lust, this is a sure sign that it is true and not a false spirit. Meaning, you guys are turning away from all those things that destroy faith and destroy marriages and destroy their soul. Their consciences are awoken. I mean, that's what, that's what happened in 1735. You know, George Whitfield speaks about it. Jonathan Edwards speaks about it. And what we find is that in the midst of Isaiah chapter 64, really verses 1 through 4, we read about this and we go, wow, Lord, we just pray that this would happen. And, and look at verse 3. In, in the midst of this, it says, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. This is the deal. The Lord God works. He's not asleep. He's acting, ruling, and reigning. And one of the things that we have to realize is that He does things in unexpected ways. Right? Unexpected ways. For example, let me read a quote by uh, Ray Ortland. He says this, Nobody's expecting that. What, what does God's work in the past teach us? Not how predictable he is, but how surprising he is. He never acts out of character. He never contradicts his own word, but he is never at a loss for new ways to break through. Israel was cornered at the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army was bearing down on them. What happened? The sea opened up. Nobody was expecting that. The whole world, and here's another one, the whole world was stumbling in darkness with no way forward. What happened? What happened? The Savior of the world was born in a barn. Anybody expecting that? Nobody. Nobody's expecting that. How about this? Our judge endured our penalty at the cross. Nobody was expecting that. Nobody expected our sins to be forgiven at the foot of the cross or upon the cross. Jesus was then dead and buried. All the hopeful expectations He had created were exploded. What happened? He rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, and began pouring out His Spirit to make His murderers into His friends. Nobody was expecting that. So today, as we cry out to God, we should be expecting the unexpected. Lord, we don't know how you're going to work. Lord, we don't know how these things are going to play themselves out. But Lord, all we ask is that you would show up in a mighty way. A way that brings you glory. A way that saves people. A way that, you know, murderous men are turned back. I don't know, how about this? 
How many of us have prayed for the salvation of Vladimir Putin this week? Prayed, Lord, turn his heart to Jesus. Do a work of the Spirit within him. That would be unexpected. Can you imagine if Pravda, which means truth in Russian, came out and said, Vladimir Putin converts to Christ and he ends the invasion and he apologizes? That would be incredible, right? It would be absolutely incredible. And that's what we're praying. That's what we're praying that, you know, when, did you, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Boy, that's a tough one, isn't it? Who acts for those who wait for him. I don't like to wait for anything. I'm upset that Amazon isn't faster. Like, I want my Amazon package, I want, like, the click button to be attached to my doorbell. That's what I want. Click, ding, it's there. You know, like, that's what I'm looking for. And that's what we've become accustomed to, right? How many of you look through the aisles in the grocery store looking for the, for the shortest lane? Anybody? Right? And you know that whatever lane you choose will be the longest lane ever. And then you think that it's the judgment of God upon you, right? It's not, okay? You know, waiting for the Lord. And that doesn't mean that we don't prepare. That doesn't mean we don't read the Scriptures and put on the armor of God. But then we, we wait for the Lord to tell us to go or to wait. I mean, sometimes the Lord says, go, act. And sometimes He says, wait. But oftentimes what I think I find is that I move ahead of what the Lord wants me to do. Because I want to take it upon myself to fix all the problems that I see. And oftentimes we need to wait. And, and I, I struggle with this verse, right? Like I just, I, this is a hard verse for me to apply to myself. So I'm going to move on. No, I mean, I am going to move on, but... Think about that. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Red Sea, at the cross, at the tomb, waiting for him to come back again. So in the midst of all of these things, it says in verse 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. And you think about this. You, you think about, Lord, would you come down? Would you hear our prayers? Would you remember? Because you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Well, that's the problem, is that when we begin to think about our own righteousness, we begin to say, huh, I'm not that righteous. I'm not that patient. And what we find is there's a confession here that, that is in, in verse 6. The confession, and, and it likens our, ourselves to, you know, there's a, a simile here that, that talks about four different metaphors. Um, we all have become like one who is unclean. Now, that, that is the, the picture of the leper. Essentially, if we were true to ourselves and true to this, we would go around going, unclean, unclean. Do not talk to me. This is George. I'm unclean from my sin. Unclean, unclean. And so our, our, our sins make us unclean. Our sins pollute us. But then it says this in verse 6, and this is such a good verse. It says, And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You know, when, when we think about that, um, 
we think about the idea that um, that these are unclean, that these are polluted garments, and that there's this tendency within our lives to mix up the gospel and to mix up our own righteousness, right? Um, now, I think he, referring to righteous deeds, this is why this is really helpful for me. Uh, there are times in my life when I do something um, kind, right? I know they're brief moments. You know, uh, I try not to do it very often because I don't want to set expectations too high, especially within my marriage. Uh, you know, the, tr- the, the, the trick you know, to good marriages is, you know, setting the expectations very low uh, and then occasionally exceeding them. Just keep that in mind. I'm just kidding, okay? Um, Katie has told me many times when I say that, though, that she can't lower her expectations any lower than she does for me. Uh, they're already in the basement and that there, are, there is nowhere to go but up. Um, now, in the midst of this... Um, there are times when I do something kind, um, and, and, I, and sometimes I'll do something kind, and you guys know this, especially if you're, if you're a man, like sometimes you'll do the dishes, you'll, you'll make the bed, you'll, you'll do other things, and you're hoping to get something in return, okay? Might be a little time by yourself, might be a little time with her, whatever it is, right? I mean, whatever it happens to be, you're, you're worried. That's not a righteous deed, okay? Because you are bending and manipulating what you're doing. So it's not a righteous deed, okay? But we think it is. Now, our wives would certainly say, please do the good thing rather than not do the good thing, okay? But it's not a completely righteous deed because it is tainted with selfish motivations, right? And so we think about that. But there's also, I think what we're talking about here, more specifically, is when we think that we are good people on the whole. That we think that, you know, when, you know I'm a good guy. You know, I go to church. I teach people about the Bible. You know, I I love my kids. I take care of them. All of those kind of things. I'm a good guy. And so we begin to buy into the press reports that we conjure up in our own minds thinking that we are good people. And what the scripture says is that even our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. You know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's, in verse 7, it says, there's, there's no one who calls upon your name. But there's this tendency within our heart to want to merit the, the, the salvation of our souls. Because we think, if I can just do enough, then God will love me. There's a part of us that thinks that. So because of that, I'll do something good, and God will feel good about me, and I'll earn my salvation. So even as Christians, even as you know, Alan and Courtney today stood up here and says, look, you are... You know, forsaken except for the love of God. You know, the, the vow goes something like this. You know, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? And then it says, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? But the problem is our hearts twist it. Our hearts twist those words because we could be standing up here saying, there's no hope. We're singing in Christ alone in the midst of Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday, we're trying to earn our salvation by our good efforts and our good deeds. And we're we're forsaking Jesus because our hearts call that we have to earn something. Now, you should do works of good. You should do good deeds that flow out of a love and 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 a love for what Jesus has done, but we don't do good deeds to earn our salvation. But rather, Jesus died so that we could be saved. And we trust and rest upon Him alone. Rather 
than our righteous deeds. I think it was Martin Luther who said, we have to repent of even our righteous deeds. And I remember reading that in college and going, our righteous deeds? You mean I have to repent of my sins and my righteous deeds? I'm just going to be repenting all the time. You know, like, I mean, this is the struggle. The Heidelberg Catechism speaks about it in this way. You know, how are you, this is question 60, how are you righteous before God? And it says, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And it says, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect salvation, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. That's good news. That's why it's called the gospel good news. But then it goes on to say, so why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? And the answer is not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Essentially, question 61 is, basically questions 60, 61, and 62, which I'm about to read, are basically in Christ alone singing it. That's what they're singing, right? In Christ alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling, even though that's not in Christ alone. Question 62, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? It's a great question, right? The great question is, how do we do that? How do we look at our righteousness? And the answer is this, because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Or like a polluted garment. The second part of verse 6. So not only are we like lepers because of our sin, not only are our righteous deeds like a polluted garment, but we all fade like a leaf. And this is like the leaf in the autumn that is crinkly and cracking and really has no life or vibrancy or water in it. You know, when you pick up one of those brown leaves way, way late in winter, I mean, there's a whole bunch of those leaves still hanging on some of the, um, I think, some of the white oaks in Windsor Castle. If you go up to them and you crush them, it's just a, a big mass of crumbs right there. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So the four similes there, like we're like a leper, we're like a, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. I mean, there's a, a sense in which what we're saying there is that we will wander to and fro from, from sin to sin to sin, and we are just like a, a leaf on the wind flowing down. But then it says this um, in verse 8, because when you, when you come to the end of yourself, you come to the Lord in verse 8, and you say this, and, I, and I'm, I'm coming to the end here. It says, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. So what does it say? It says, Lord, I'm like a leper, I'm like a polluted garment, I'm like a leaf that's cracking, and I'm also like a, a leaf that the wind blows away, all my sins. So, so Lord, I need you to show up in a mighty way. You are the potter, and I am the clay. 
James Smith, who was the predecessor of Charles Spurgeon at the New Park Street Chapel in London from 1841 to 1850, says this, The doctrine of God's sovereignty is generally offensive to the carnal mind, or to the secular mind, because it strikes a death blow at the root of man's pride and lays the sinner low in the dust before God. Man does not like to be represented as lying absolutely helpless at the foot of divine mercy, entirely at the Lord's disposal. But God must be a sovereign, and if he ever and if ever we are saved, it must be in the exercise of his sovereignty. He says in the, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house in Jeremiah chapter 18. And he says, so I went down to the, the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands or broken or disfigured. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, Can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. These words are applicable to us as to them. Think about this. That we, the people of God, are in God's hand. As marred or twisted vessels, we have no beauty, no apparent value, unfit for sale, and unfit for use. If we are to be made of use, if we are to glorify His great name, we must be remade. Therefore, every Christian is said to be His workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus unto good works, and that according to, his for, according to the foreordination, whatever we are spiritually, we are by His grace. That's what we see. You see, we have, you are our Father, we are the clay, You are our potter. Lord, recreate us into the image of our Savior, our brother, our King, the great prophet and priest, Jesus. Lord, would you show up? Please, Lord. Please, Lord.